Welcome, everyone. This is your host of What is Black Podcast, uh, Dr. Jacqueline Dujay. This episode I recorded back in April, and I think it, it was timely. Um, this past weekend, Netflix released Ava DuVernay's um, new docuseries, When They See Us, which is a story about um, five young African-American men um, in the late 80s who were falsely accused and arrested and convicted for um, a crime they didn't commit. They've been since exonerated, and that series talks about the trials, the experiences that those young men, I would say even trauma that those young men and their family experienced and how sort of un- uncovered um, a system that, at times feels like it's stacked against young black men. This particular episode is not directly related to that um, docu-series. I do plan to do a follow-up episode to kind of take a deeper dive into um, that docu-series that I've started to watch. And having two black sons myself, you know, it's just gut-wrenching Um to watch that series. And I sort of had to take a little break before um, finishing up um, the docu-series because it was so impactful, so moving, so important. But where this episode with our special guest, Dr. Rhea Boyd, sort of of ties in for me is that we talk about what Dr. Boyd calls um, adverse police encounters. And you'll hear more about that and learn more about that um, throughout the conversation. But we do talk about issues of police violence, encounters that um, individuals do have um, with police. We talk about social justice. We talk about the role of advocacy and the role that we have as pediatricians to help our families um, and our children, you know, deal with them and also how how to address um, certain issues and that we're not powerless, that we do have power. And Dr. Boyd um, shares that information. So I just wanted to, you know, just share a little bit about um, how this episode connects and, again, a little bit of response and initial reaction to um, When They See Us, which is a powerful drama. If you haven't seen it yet, um, I would definitely recommend seeing it, but also recommend that if you watch it with your kids to be open to conversations, um, to talk about and sort of find out where, where they are feeling, what they're feeling as a result of watching watching that um, that series because it's important that we all talk. We also acknowledge the impact socially, emotionally to our well-being it has, especially since we, I feel like in the media, we're seeing so many stories that really create a negative um, stereotype or negative portrayal of the Black experience. And my goal with this podcast as a mom, as a doctor, as a human being is to affirm us as human beings and have a converse, have com- open up the conversation so that we can support each other as a community um, across the board, black, white, Hispanic, um, Asian, that we're all in this together. And as Dr. Boyd, Dr. Boyd so eloquently speaks to that as well. So let's get into the show. And I'd love to hear your feedback on social media and for future episodes, um, your thoughts. Talk to you soon. Welcome, everyone, um, to another episode of What is Black Podcast. 
I'm joined today by our special guest, Dr. Rhea Boyd. She's a pediatrician and child and community health advocate in the San Francisco, um, in San Francisco, California. So welcome, Rhea. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's such an honor to be on today. And as I mentioned before, it is such an honor and a privilege to um, have you on um, as a guest today. And as I mentioned earlier, I said, you know, I, I'm sort of fangirling as well. I've been a, um, an admirer of your work for the last couple of years. Um, we're both pediatricians and, you know, I've seen you at conferences. I've um, heard you present, follow you on Twitter. I'm not a stalker, <laughs> um, but I love your work. <laughs> um, love, um, love the articles that, that you've written. And I think one of the reasons, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, prior to the broadcast that I wanted to, wanted to speak with you is to, to share with, our, with my listeners, or to our listeners, um, the important role that pediatricians play um, in helping parents deal with some really tough issues. Um, you know, this is a podcast about helping um, parents who have uh, black children. And we're going to touch on some really um, topical issues that um, sometimes black parents fear and sometimes um, black parents are having to, to deal with. So before we get started, long-winded introduction and, and hello but um, before the conversation starts, but I think first and foremost, I wanted to have you kind of share how you came how you came to be this this advocate and advocate for social justice. What about it? Um, as a pediatrician, as a person, um, kind of drew you to that, to the work that you do? I think for me, I think I came through to pediatrics through an advocacy lens. I think for me, it started when I was really young and trying to think about what I wanted to be when I grew up and the type of adult I wanted to be was somebody who looked out for, protected, and took care of kids and without having any intimate knowledge of the struggles other kids might be going through, I just had this strong sense that maybe some kids when I went to bed at night and felt safe, maybe other kids went to bed at night and felt scared. Maybe other kids didn't have a bed to lie in. Maybe they didn't have dinner before they went to bed. And I think that probably speaks to my parents and the type of conversations we had as a family, but I think I always wanted to be the type of adult who stood on the side of kids uh, and defended them and stood up for them um, and made space for them in the world. Um, and I always conceptualized that type of adult as a pediatrician. For me, it wasn't as much the clinical side of pediatrics as it was the advocacy side that helped me understand why um, the connections between what happens in our lives and in society is so related to what happens in our bodies and what happens to our health. I think that's what uh, brought me to pediatrics and to pediatrics as an advocate first. Um, it's, it seems like, you know, like you're saying, a lot of the roots of your advocacy started um, as a child. And I think, I think what's really important now is that I think for, a, you know, last couple of years, I think there are more opportunities for young people and examples, examples of young people um, really getting involved in advocating, whether it's about police shooting or police violence or just other social injustices. Um, I think this has been a remarkable time um, to see young people um, sort of rise up and have their voices, um, voices heard. And you talk about the impact of 
of health to to some of the some of the advocacy work and and I had read on your um, blog site and website how you you talk about the connectedness of health to the world around us you know where you, whether you where you live work play go to school and also that intersection or um, and connectedness of health to who we are as people, regardless of race, ethnicity, or culture, or or spirituality. And I was just wondering how how you kind of came to that realization. You know, through experiences. Um, was there something in your in your past or experiences that really kind of brought that home for you? Yeah, I think again, it really sat in my childhood and. I think it's that way for a number of children that they understand what's happening around them, even if they don't really have the language to articulate it. They're picking up on cues from their surroundings. For me, those cues came from my school. So I spent most of my childhood in Akron, Ohio, which is this small city in Northeast Ohio, like most of America, pretty segregated. And uh, I lived across the street from... Uh, a middle school that was predominantly African-American. But I went to the Catholic school that was right next door to that school. So there was my house, and then across the street was this African-American middle school. And then across the street from that school was the Catholic school I went, which was predominantly white. And every day making that trek back and forth, just one block from my house, I saw the divide. Um, you know, my parents fortunately had the resources to send my sister and I to the Catholic school, which was a wonderful school. Um, but I always noticed the resource divide between my school and the public middle school that was right next door to our house. Kids who went to that school didn't wear book bags outside. You know, my sister and I would walk to school with book bags on our backs, full of books, with lunches in our hands. And kids waiting for the public middle school didn't have those same things. And it just started questions in my mind about why. And why do those kids look just like me and the kids that go to my school don't, but yet have all the resources? So I think the small ways in which I as a child witnessed inequality and experienced inequality in my own family and in my own experiences in education really shaped how I come to how I came to understand the connections between resources, racial inequality, and eventually health as I picked up more of a language about uh, medicine and healthcare. Now, I've, you know, I've read, I've read some of your work and I, you know, know that you, you have um, a fondness for working with, um, you know, young, young medical students uh, in regards to advocacy, I was wondering, have you, have you in your career worked with, with high school students or younger students to kind of um, help them understand that intersection of health and inequality, social justice, and how maybe they can, they can play a role? Just like, you know, your experiences as a child kind of shaped um, your understanding. Yeah, other than, you know, the one-on-one interactions we get, in clinical practice, I think I have tried to work with young people throughout my career and even my education and training. Um, In medical school, I went to medical school in Nashville, Tennessee, um, 
and Nashville, like <laughs> Akron, Ohio, is also deeply segregated. And I went to Vanderbilt University, which was on the white side of town, and uh, which looked drastically different than um, the side of town where an organization called the Student National Medical Association, which is the student branch of the National Medical Association, which was formed because African-Americans and other non-white um, medical students and professionals were excluded from the American Medical Association, the AMA. The SNMA and I went and volunteered at um, a preschool in uh, the black area of town. And um, it was really eye-opening and fascinating to talk to preschoolers about inequality and about health. And you have the conversation in different ways, and we do it through activities. But um, like I said at the beginning, like kids, kids witness inequality, uh, and sometimes they just need an opportunity to talk about what they're seeing um, and what it means to them. And maybe they don't use words like injustice, but maybe they use words like unfair. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think I've always tried to work um, with youth. And now I am working on a um, advocacy project in California, where I live now, that's trying to expand access to um, social and emotional and mental health supports for kids across our state. And there, again, I'm working with young people and honestly learning from young people um, how to describe uh, the issues that they're facing and how to best address them. Now, I've noticed a lot of <clears throat> a lot of doctors of color and, you know, some of our professional organizations and, you know, conferences and meetings that we attend. And it's not, I know it's not just doctors of color, but I feel like they tend to be a little bit more prominent regarding issues of social justice or maybe particular types of social justice. And I was wondering, you know, what, what is, what is your thought? I mean, I know we have a lot of, there are a lot of allies in this work and it's not typical pediatric work, right? Cause I remember when I went to residency, you know, our didactic sessions, clinical sessions, or I didn't really have clinical sessions that really focused on like, how are you going to address social justice? But as a, you know, but as a resident, you realize when you're in your clinic, that you have a family that may not have all the means, right, and you're going to write a prescription for medication and, and they have to make a choice. Sometimes families have to make a choice between, you know, paying for that medication or paying rent. And and I think, you know, we all have that exposure, but I, I just find that it seems like there are predominantly doctors of color that are sort of on the front lines addressing many of these social justice issues. But I'm just wondering, in your work, I know in your work, you, you work across the board with allies and non-doctors of color to address those those social justice issues. But I was just wondering, what are your thoughts about, maybe why do you think, maybe it's just my perception, it seems like there are more docs of color kind of like on the front line of social justice who are speaking out more about, about those issues. Yeah, I think, um, I think in some ways it's true. I think people tend to work on issues that feel personal to them, um, things that you no, not necessarily because you were taught them, but you know because you've experienced it. And I think when it comes to issues of inequality, right, like indigenous populations, black populations, Latinx populations, Asian communities, they have faced great oppressions, violent oppressions. And the legacy of that oppression is still felt even by generations that might not currently be experiencing that same sort of 
oppression and disadvantage. Uh, and I think having that experience for many people who come into medicine from those backgrounds shapes how they see their responsibility as clinicians. Uh, it certainly has for me, and I know it has for some of my colleagues. But I also think it's a challenge in the work because if each of us have to wait to actually experience something like inequality to be passionate about addressing it, you know, not enough of us will. Um, it's something I push myself on all the time, you know, although as an African-American who cares deeply about what's happening in black America, like it's insufficient for me to only push advocacy that affects black people. Like black people are in a struggle that includes some poor people, that includes indigenous people, that includes immigrants, that includes Muslim populations. And when your advocacy is linked across these groups, we're obviously stronger together, but it also speaks to the fact that what's happening to people happens to a lot of different groups too. Um, and hopefully even groups who may not see themselves affected by certain issues can find the empathy to work passionately on behalf of those issues. And I mean, I, I, I totally agree. Cause I mean, I, again, it's, it's a, it's a perception versus, you know, having like the hard data for me, but I know they're definitely like great personal friends and colleagues of mine that are not doctors of color, but are very much also on the front line. But I just find it, I just, I just find it interesting. I think there's been a change, maybe not so much a change, but maybe it's just, I think maybe, you know, yourself being a younger pediatrician and other younger pediatricians are really using um, non-traditional means, right, of getting the word out about um, health, impacts of health, using Twitter, using uh, Facebook, maybe not Facebook, maybe you don't use Facebook as much, um, using social media and crafting those messages in a way that are engaging and kind of create sort of like um, this contagion effect where people are like, you know what, I need to know more, how can I get involved and get active, which, I, which, I, which is something I definitely admire um, about um, the work that you do. Thank you so much. Um, I think one reason I really love engaging on social media is one that it invites more people to the conversation, myself included, than, you know, how some conversations about who gets to work on certain projects happen in our siloed healthcare system, in our siloed academic system, you know, like... I have had so much professional development happen on Twitter, people that I wouldn't have otherwise had, had any shared experience with, people who wouldn't know me or my writing or anything know me through Twitter. So I love Twitter in some ways. You know, it's a really problematic platform, but I do love how it can connect people and in some ways level a bit of the playing field. You can talk, You can speak to somebody on Twitter who is the head of your hospital, who leads a department that you want to be a part of or your supervisor about a topic where you can engage with them just as equally as they can engage with you. Um, and I really, I love that. I think it's given me more of a platform as a young pediatrician. Um, I also think I value the uh, public nature of the platform. And maybe this speaks to my generation, but I think 
I don't want to just say what I think about something in a small group of people who agree with me. I want to say it to everyone and I want to say it as loud as I possibly can because I think I learn by having other people push back on how I'm thinking about a subject and I grow by getting to engage with people who have a richer experience and more knowledge than I do about things that I care about as well. So anyone listening to this podcast who's also thinking about maybe making the step into social media, I would highly encourage it. I found a lot of professional opportunities that way. Which I think, you know, underscores sort of like that little D democracy, right? That opportunity to sort of um, have free speech and free thought and exchange of ideas, which I think is is great. And also, too, it's, it's like you said, I think it's also a great opportunity to learn about new people. Um, like today, you know, just going through your feed a little bit, um, I saw uh, a reference to an article, a recent article. It's called Privilege by um, a basketball player wrote it about white privilege. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I mean, I thought it was a, I don't, I would not have known about that article had I not searched on Twitter. So, and that sort of, I was like, oh, I was happy to read, I was happy to read that, read that article. And from the perspective and the point of view from the, from the player, um, Kyle Corver, I believe, uh, from the Utah Jazz, which was, which was very, which was very, very interesting and very uh, pleasing to read. I find so many amazing articles on Twitter. <laughs> Things that, because even when we try to stay, you know, up on what is the latest in medical journals, in the news about issues you care about, I love having what I read be curated by other people who I respect and care about. And that's how I've shaped my Twitter feed. I follow people who I think do interesting work, who I think contribute thoughtful comments. And when they make recommendations about things to read, I read them. Uh, so I have the same experience <laughs> you have on me. And I think what's interesting too is that, like you know, like you like you mentioned, you know, typical medical journals, you know, you know, we sort of have to read right to stay to stay up to date. But in a in a in a lot of ways, this other this other arm that you bring, you know, to the to the era to the new era of pediatrics, right? This advocacy and social justice, is that these are articles that I don't think would necessarily be on the reading list, right, or the curated list for a typical pediatrician. But yet, like someone like yourself, who who's in this in this world and doing this work, right? You kind of open that up for your um, your followers and those who want to engage with you to learn that different aspect of how you know we help how we as pediatricians as individuals can kind of help improve children's health. So I'm making that as a segue to um, trying to combine the Twitter and your advocacy work. Um, I saw I saw recently that um, you had a Twitter appeal for. Um, pediatricians and other healthcare providers that work with children um, to share stories um, about um, the intersection of policing and pediatrics. And I know that's an area of um, research and interest of yours. I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about um, this this work that you're doing um, to address police violence um, and racial injustice. Yes. So... I, like many black Americans, am sickened and devastated by rates of police violence, but also the broader structure around state-sanctioned and state 
surveillance of black families and black communities and black people. Um, I think these are practices that are harmful, that are well studied and that result in injuries and death sometimes, but sometimes in the separation of families, sometimes in fear and intimidation in your own neighborhood or community, sometimes in unlawful searches and the inconvenience of being stopped on your way to your job or school or whatever the rest of your day is that changes how you approach your work because of what you had to deal with on your way. I think it's a living reality for black people, but it's entirely unacceptable and it has health consequences that are recognized and studied. And so I want my professional organization, the American Academy of Pediatrics, of which I am a part, to do something about it. I want them to speak publicly about it. Um, and in an effort to move the academy to consider addressing police violence as a child and community health issue, um, a number of pediatric colleagues and I are doing a story drive. Um, so the goal is to collect narrative stories about kids and families who have been impacted by an event of police violence or what I'm calling more broadly adverse police encounters. When you have an exposure to a police officer that has a negative consequence as a result and that consequence could be as dire as violence, uh, but it may also include incarceration, arrest, getting a criminal record, um, which has ramifications and consequences subsequently for children and families. Um, and I'm hoping that collecting these narratives will help humanize the topic for the academy and pediatricians who might not have experienced it or might not understand just how it becomes a health issue um, for kids and their families. Uh, the project has just started, and you saw, as you mentioned, our um, kind of Twitter call. Uh, that happened really organically just after hearing um, a narrative from one of our colleagues in the AAP, um, our professional organization. But uh, we are now going to get organized and actually make formal calls to other professional associations, um, to teachers, to nurses, um, and hope, we'll see which way it goes, but I hope it will evolve into a platform where any advocate who wants, who needs a story to help further their cause to address adverse police encounters in their own locality can use these narratives that we collect to really speak truth to power on this issue and get some changes enacted. Sorry, I had a question because I always try to, um, with like some of the serious discussions that we have, also try to provide um, one some background for families about the work that is being done to help elevate and affirm kids of color, but at the same time also kind of provide some resources and tips for parents. Like I've had um, had a guest, Jenny, Dr. Jenny Ward. We talked about the talk. Um, many people might be familiar with, you know, these are just conversations 
um, parents have with with primarily African American kids, and may, there may be other other communities of color that do something similarly. Well, you sort of provide some um, tips and guidance. I'm really I'm I'm, I'm really making this um, very simplified and some probably a little bit more nuanced conversation. But you know, for example, how do you you know how do you talk to your child about before they get into the car? Right, you give your 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 child and I've had these conversations my husband's had these conversations with our sons you know you drive the speed limit what do you do if you happen to be pulled over you know if you are pulled over by the police so that's like one example using the talk right um so I was wondering if you had any in your practice and in your research um tips for parents that let's say it hasn't occurred to their child and hopefully it won't happen to their child, these adverse police encounters, but um, tips for parents on maybe how to sort of, can you prepare for it? Um, how, do you, how do you talk to your kids if they've seen, seen something in the, in the media um, or have heard about a friend or, or a family member um, who's had these sort of experiences? Yeah, I think one thing that's really important for me when talking to parents about these topics is to affirm their concern. I think in the wake of a number of public events of police violence that have taken the lives of black men and women, black boys and girls, there has been almost an open public question about whether or not this commonly happens, whether or not all black people are at risk or only some, whether or not there was something that the victim did such that that happened to them. And all of, all of those questions slowly erode a bit of the confidence that black people have that when you react to these scenarios, like what happened was wrong, that maybe you're wrong. And so I like to start with an affirmation to say, you're not wrong. That wasn't okay that that happened. It doesn't matter what that person was doing during that scenario or what kind of life that person lived. You know, sometimes we'll watch the media walk through and say, well, so-and-so wasn't a saint. That matters not when the public department that your tax dollars pay for kills that person. So... I always like to start with a bit of an affirmation so that people know that they're not alone, that they're not crazy, and that this is really affecting them, that their stresses and their worries for their child are legitimate. Um, and with that affirmation, then I like to provide some sense of what can we do about it, because I don't want people to feel paralyzed in this scenario, and I certainly myself don't want to feel paralyzed. Um, and I think that's why I take on these advocacy efforts so that I can see myself contributing to part of the solution. And so then I invite families into those advocacy efforts or to at least be aware of them, which include ways that if they are in those encounters, they can keep themselves um, a bit more safe. So an example here in California is, and I'm going to pull it up right now, is an app that you can download onto your phone um, called California Justice. California is just C-A and then space justice. This is an app that will record an event of police violence if you're concerned and send it to the ACLU. So I like this app because 
part of what has arisen in um, the recent wake of these events is a need for public accountability for what happened during that event. And video is some of the most powerful way to publicly depict exactly what occurred. Um, and the good news about this app is that even if your phone is destroyed, the video is sent immediately as you're taking it. So um, it's one way that um, parents as bystanders, as community members who might witness something that's distressing, or as victims themselves can try to participate in holding the system accountable such that these events don't occur anymore. I think those are, I think those are very important. Because um, again, wearing the, you know, once I became a parent, it, especially parent of teenagers, it's like totally, totally changed my mind, right? You have a totally different set of <coughs> concerns and worries. Um, but at the same time, I love the I love the positivity and I, of the the affirmation of of parents' concerns. And at the same time, I would think also children as well because they're probably you know again you you alluded to um, another of your your um, advocacy projects, your work that you're doing, expanding social and emotional and mental health supports. And I'm wondering if in your experience you've also found that you needed to maybe. I don't know if families, if they if they need like to see counseling or to to talk with someone or share their experiences, that that also um, helps as well um, for them to deal with these um, these experiences. Definitely, I think a critical um, foundation of kids' social, emotional, and mental wellness is the support of their relationships to their parents and to their peers. And so what we're hoping to do through our project is make more supports available and funded through children's insurance. We're starting with Medicaid here in California because the vast majority of our kids are on Medicaid, but that your insurance could pay for a support that supports these critical nurturing relationships. Too often we have thought of social and emotional and mental health supports as like a medicalized clinical support, that maybe what you need is medication or maybe what you need is institutionalization. Um, and for some kids and for some needs, that may be what you need. Um, but for other kids who perhaps um, don't have um, the same need, uh, sometimes supporting and trying to prevent a bad outcome or uh, a mental health impairment um, is best supported by just supporting their family structure uh, in a different way. So we're kind of exploring ways to support families to prevent um, mental health impairments that could come from something like witnessing high levels of violence, um, including violence from law enforcement in your community, for example. So this has been... This has been a wonderful conversation, Ria, and I think um, your work is is definitely of value, and I, I definitely admire it. And I hope to continue to continue the conversation in our you know, professional professional association um, to really address many of these social injustices. Um, but I guess I don't. I mean, I don't want to leave with with such a heavy heavy topic as it's important, but. As a as a physician, as a as a woman of color, as a person, what do you what do you do to try to help have fun and kind of um, sort of balance out 
the serious serious aspects of your work to kind of con- continue to continue to recharge yourself to do the work that you do every day? I think honestly, like having conversations like this, being in community with you know other Black women who have similar interests to mine, who empower me, who um, make me feel like the work that I'm doing is important and valued, and who I can similarly be that source of encouragement for them. Um, I think that's been critical for my well, my own well-being. And then to give an example from today, later tonight, I'm going to go see Alvin Ailey's um, perform, the Alvin Ailey Dance Company perform. So I think, you know, the arts, music, um, thinking about liberation from not just the standpoint of people's health and well-being, but also in... Um, in dance and music. It sounds like a fun, fun evening. I've had an opportunity to see um, Avin Ellie. Um, and it's, yeah, they are, they are beautiful, talented, and I can, I can see um, you enjoying, enjoying that performance this evening. So Rhea, if people, you know, want to learn more about you, um, engage with you on social media, what, what are the best platforms or what, how, can they, how can they reach out to you? Yes, I welcome people who are interested um, here in California or anywhere in connecting. I'm on Twitter at Rhea Boyd, M-D, R-H-E-A-E-O-Y-D-M-D, like doctor. Um, I also have a blog, RiaMD.wordpress.com, where I talk about some of these topics um, and those are probably the best places. I am always down for a conversation and very open to collaboration as well. All right. Thank you so much, Ria. It was, a great, it was great talking with you. Thank you so much again for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of What is Black Podcast. We would love to hear from you about this episode. Check us out on our, all our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, if you have Apple Podcasts, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear about what you thought of this episode and other episodes. Talk to you soon.